Good morning. Uh, my name is Adam Thomas. I'm a pastor for uh, teaching here at Wyatt, and uh, it is good to be here to worship with you. It is good to open up the Word of God uh, and let Him speak through His Word. Uh, if you would, turn your Bibles to, to Malachi. This is uh, the final book of our study uh, of the Minor Prophets, and I didn't know what I was getting into. I was a little nervous about doing the Minor Prophets because you never hear many sermons on it. And uh, I don't know about you, but, but I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed being at a place in the Scriptures that is often neglected. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I, I hope uh, that you have uh, as well. Uh, what we're going to do, in a couple weeks, we're starting a, a new series on the Gospel of John. Uh, and so next week what we're going to do is we're going to take the last chapter of Malachi uh, and then kind of read maybe the first of John, and then we're going to try to bridge that. There's 500 years uh, in between there that we never really think about uh, in, in history that kind of set the stage uh, between what we're studying today and Christ's coming, and, and so we're going to look at that, what we call the intertestamental uh, period next week as we uh, kind of look at that as a bridge uh, from series this series to the next. So uh, I hope that will be an enjoyable um, to you. When we think about the Old Testament, I got to be honest, like Malachi kind of takes you by surprise because, I mean, there are, there's epicness in the Old Testament. I mean, there's just, there's amazing things, the account of creation, uh, the amazing, miraculous uh, way in which God led his people out of captivity in Egypt and, and all kinds of war and, and battles and just amazing kings, Solomon and the reign of Solomon, the reign of David, and just these amazing things that happens in the Old Testament. So you would kind of think, well, I guess the Old Testament is going to end in like a huge crescendo, uh, crescendo of, of this amazing moment, uh, and it really doesn't. It's kind of anticlimactic. We see, uh, we see more, of a, more or less Israel just kind of limping limping out of the Old Testament age, just struggling, uh, feeling neglected by God, uh, and engaged in, as we'll see, a lot of worship of self and not of God. But when we really think about that, isn't that a bit fitting? I mean, we, in, the New, in the Old Testament we have, it begins with the fall of man in which Adam and Eve make a very selfish, selfish choice to go against God. And so we end the Old Testament of really seeing the effects and how that just is, has pervaded uh, everyone and pervaded even the people of God and the priest of God and made them very self-centered and, and thinking about themselves before God. And what we see in the book of Malachi is six major disputes that God enters into with his people. And uh, we're not going to take these in order. We're actually going to group them I think we can group them into kind of three main reasons that I would say what you see in Malachi is a lot of people that are worshiping self. We see first that, our, our, that, that we know that we worship self when our worship has no effect in our relationship with others. And then we're going to see uh, we know that we, we worship self when we do not give God our all. And thirdly, we're going to see that we uh, know that we're involved in self-worship when, when we worship the God of our own creation instead of the God of revelation. And so I want to take these one by one and look at these 
six disputes that God has with his people. First, we want to see that we know that we worship self when our worship has no effect in our relationship with others. And we're going to see this. These are the middle disputes in the book of Malachi, the third and fourth uh, dispute. And the first deals with marriages. It deals with marriages. Look at ver- in chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord with which the loves and, and uh, with which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so we know that this was a big deal to God in the Old Testament. Like he did not want his his people marrying people that worshiped other gods. We see it's really a big deal in the New Testament when we're told do not be unequally yoked. And so this is a big deal. Why? Well, we see it in the life of Solomon. We know that Solomon kind of had things together and still he started having all these wives. That was his first problem, is having wives, uh, and he chose wives that were worshiping other gods, and therefore they led his heart to do uh, a lot of things that he probably would not have done if he hadn't been so caught up in making his, uh, the, his wives that worship false gods happy. So the next thing we notice here is that it's not just about their marrying false, that they're marrying uh, wives that worship false gods. We see divorce. We see divorce as being rampant for his people. So in verse 13 in chapter 2, it says this, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Okay, so, so God's saying, hey, I'm not accepting your offering anymore. Your worship, I'm not accepting it. And the people are asking, why do you not accept it? And it says, because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union, and what uh, was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says to the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And so God says you people have a divorce problem. You're just willing to cast your wives aside. The way God has ordered life is that you marry the wife of your youth, and minus death, she becomes the wife of your old age. I think the way verse 16 words this is interesting. It says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. Notice what he says that, that does not love his wife, but he divorces her. In our society, what we really look at, we see love as this 
as this force outside of us that we have no control over. And so, like, love is love makes me get married, but then if love leaves, then suddenly I'm not going to stay married uh, to my spouse. And what we see here is, is, is that that's not what the Bible teaches. Even though we teach that we divorce because or our society says we divorce because we're no longer in love, but this verse does not speak of divorce as being caused by not loving your wife. It speaks it as the essence of not loving her. The opposite of your love, of loving your spouse, is divorcing them. And God says whoever does this covers his garment with violence because it says that you're tearing apart what it says uh, in verse 15, he made them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And so you've done violence in what God has put together. And so when you ask, why should God reject a man's worship because of his relationship with his wife? Because true worship of the living God will always, always, overflow into our relationship with others and the first person that should receive the benefit of that overflow of worship of God is those who are supposed to be our closest human relationships which is our spouse the older I get the more I really when I want to judge a man who says he worships God the more I find myself really examining his marriage I do. Because a man can have all kinds of great, amazing thoughts on theology and, and who God is. And, and I've seen guys that could do that. They're, they're awesome at theology. They're also awesome at, oh, I've memorized all this scripture and I know all this about God. I want to know, what does your marriage look like? Now, I understand you have to look at the wife and is she easy are hard to lead. You have to look, okay, not is this man having a fight with his, with his spouse, but you, you look at the, the film strip, the, the whole picture of his marriage. But I think you can see a lot about a person's relationship with God when you look at how they love and care and serve their spouse. But how can, because, how can a person truly know the grace of God if they expect perfection from their spouse? How could a person know and understand the forgiveness of God and hold grudges to their spouse? How can a person humbled by the sacrifice of God in Christ refuse to humbly serve his wife or his spouse or, their, or her, her husband? If our knowledge of God has no effect in, in what we do with our primary human relationship, which is our spouse, if we're married, then it's just facts in the head. It has no effect on your life, then what is your worship? The New Testament tells us the same exact thing in 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. 
so that you so that your prayers may not be hindered isn't that interesting here we have an old testament example of god saying i'm not accepting your sacrifices because you're all divorcing your wives you're not loving your spouses and therefore i have no interest in your worship i reject it and we have a new testament example of god saying hey if you're not honoring honoring your spouse if you're not honoring your wife i'm not going to hear your prayers i'm not going to listen to your prayers you have Two example, an example in both the old and the new of God saying, hey, your relationship with your wife is majorly important to me. And you cannot have a great relationship with me unless that relationship is overflowing into a great relationship with your wife. Imagine, men. And I would say it, it, this also applies, wives to husbands, but these verses speak to men. Imagine how important it must be to God for you to serve and love and care for your spouse that he would reject your worship and your prayers on the basis of how you treat him. It's huge. It's huge. So think about that, men. Is your theology and your worship to God, is it being demonstrated in the way you treat your spouse? But not only should, should our worship affect how we treat our wives, it should affect how we treat all people. Look at ver- chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift with- witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so we have some, some things that God has a problem with. He says, he says don't, treat, uh, don't treat someone else as your wife. Don't be an adulterer. You, you leave other men's wives alone it's simple and you don't cheat on your spouse says here uh you don't don't speak lies um don't uh don't don't swear falsely against those uh around you and and specifically focus on don't take advantage of others whether it's someone that's working under you so in this verse, it's all about people that you could take advantage of. It could be people working under you. You pay them a, a terrible wage. You don't care for them. Or a, a widow in your midst that is hurting and needs help, and you don't help her, help her, or you take advantage of her. Or an orphan, someone who doesn't have parents that you cast aside and you, or you abuse. And God says... My, your worship of me should, if you're truly going to worship me, it's going to have an effect on how you treat others. He says, those who treat people this way do not fear me. They do not fear me. Listen to me, true worship, true awe and fear of the true God will make you treat others around you with grace and love and care 
starting with those closest to you in your home and then going to, to all people who you come in contact with. That is what true worship and not self-worship should do. You should have an outflowing of, of effort and energy and love to other people and not yourself. Worship of God causes us to, to take the focus of our, off of ourselves and put it on others. So that's the first way you know that you're worshiping self as the people of Malachi did is when you're, uh, you're not loving your spouse, you're not loving everyone else, you're, you're just focused on yourself. The second way, we know that we worship self when we do not give God our all. First of all, it talks about in chapter 1, starting with verse 7, we see uh, we know we're self-worshiping when he does not receive our best. It says in verse 7, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present uh, that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? So the priests, who were those who were the gatekeepers, who were supposed to be in charge of making sure that the people brought the best to God for sacrifice, were failing. The people were saying, you know, I'm going to just, I don't want to give, like, like that perfect lamb right there, that's going to bring a lot of money to me and my family. And so why should I waste it up at the temple? Let me get the blind lamb. Let me get this lame lamb. Or, hey, this, this lamb's been sick. It's probably going to die anyway. Let me take that to the Lord. And they were not giving their best of the God, to God like they were supposed to. And God was very upset about that. Because he had commanded them to bring their best. So how do we apply this to ourselves, right? Like, we no longer, you know, we're, we're not on Sunday or whatever bringing uh, lambs to, to church to sacrifice them because of what Christ has done. He's, he was the sacrifice once and, and for all. So how does this apply to us? Well, Romans 12.1 says we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. That's our calling. It's no longer to present lambs to God because Christ is the lamb and he's been offered once and for all, but to present ourselves as living sacrifices of living for God and for his glory. You know, uh, this, this week there was a shoe sale in town and it's a yearly sale. And I'm not going to tell you where it was because I don't want to ever compete with you because I go every year. In case there's some size 13s, I don't want to be fighting one of my church members for some shoes because it's usually where I buy my shoes every year because it's a, it's a store that has great brands. And, uh, and what's interesting is I've been doing this, this shoe sale for three or four years. I'm not a big shopper, but I like shoes and I like saving money. I'm cheap. And so this is, this, this is a, a situation made for me when it comes to shopping. And what's interesting is you always see the same people. Like, it's like, I may not see these people throughout the rest of the year, but I recognize them because we're always at the annual shoe sale. 
Why? Because it's great to, to find stuff that is very, uh, very worthy of a high price that's been discounted like a whole lot. And a lot of you, you have your own sales that you like to hit yearly, right? Because we like, we like great things, but we like paying as little as possible for them. And you know, that's the way these people were treating God, and that's the way we often treat God. Is hey, God, we want the great effects of the sacrifice, but we don't want to pay full price with perfect lambs. And we would say this, we would be acting the same way when we say, God, I want you to answer my prayers. I want you to give me your joy. I want you to fill my life with joy. Don't let any bad things happen to me. And God, when all, I want you to forgive my sins. And when all this is over, when, when I die, I want to go to heaven. But God, I want to pay as cheap of a price as possible to you. I want, I want the benefits, but I don't want to pay full price. Now, I want to be perfectly clear. I'm not saying that we pay a price for our salvation. We don't. That is a price that's paid for exclusively by Jesus Christ. But upon our salvation, God has called us in joy of the great God who gave his all for us to be a people that would give our all to him in this wonderful, joyful exchange of, of him giving us our all and us seeking to grow in giving him our best efforts. And so I would ask you this morning, are you guilty of just trying to pay half price, quarter price, and you just want the benefits of God, but you don't really want to do what all these command, all those commands and all that stuff? God, I, just, I want you, but I don't want to do anything for you. Is that you? I think I'm, probably be all of our struggles somewhat and we don't always give God our best we say you know God I'll be there on Sundays but you know the rest of the week I want to do my own thing like that's the price I'm willing to pay I'm, I'm, I'm willing to come on Sundays or I'm willing to come come on Sundays during the winter when the weather's not nice I'll come then but don't ask me to to, to do much God and that's what was happening with this self-worship in Malachi is they're just, they're half efforts. Many times we're guilty of the same thing. And the other way they were not giving their all is they were just straight up not, not paying their tithes. And so we also know that we're, we're self-centered in giving him our all when, when we don't give, when we rob him of what's due him. That's what chapter 3 verse 6 says it says for I'm the Lord uh, for I the Lord do not change therefore you O children of Jacob are not consumed from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts but you say how shall we return will man rob God yet you are robbing me but you say how have we robbed you in your, uh, he says, in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, 
the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into your storehouse that there may be food in my house and and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for for you a blessing until there is no more need. So God has a problem here. He said, my storehouses for my temple, for the priest, they're empty. You're doing pretty well, but there's not enough at the temple. There's not enough at my house to take care of, of the needs of, of my work. And so God was, again, upset about that. Where your money goes is a huge indication of whether or not you worship God or you worship self. You know, they were called at this time uh, for the tithe. And I'm not going to get into a a big debate here about the tithe. Um, The Old Testament, they gave a tithe. I believe that in the New Testament, uh, we are called to give sacrificially. We're we're called to give uh, oftentimes when it hurts to make sure the work of God goes on. And I believe that the tithe in the New Testament is a great starting place. If they, uh, in the Old Testament, under, under, under those times, under the sacrificial system and all that, if they are called to 10%, then, man, we who have received grace, how much more generous should we be in giving joyfully to the Lord? And so we should constantly be evaluating our lives, asking ourselves, am I, am I, Involved in buying stuff for myself, for my family, or am I, am I involved in making sure that the work of God uh, is able to be carried out, that missions is able to go on? Here's the amazing statement that God makes, that it almost makes me uncomfortable because I almost feel like a TV preacher when I read it, and yet it's in the Scriptures. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so I can, right now, I can hear the TV preacher taking that verse, right, and running with it, saying, hey, if you send $100 through my ministry, God's going to give you 10 times that next month. He's going to open up the floodgates of heaven and He's going to pour out all kinds of money into your life. Like, like, like that's where He would go with that verse and I'm not going there. But I will say this verse is clear. Other verses in Scripture are clear that if you give joyfully to the work of God, will you be blessed? absolutely I believe you'll be blessed. Do I believe that that's always going to mean that if you give a lot this month, the next month you're just going to be getting random checks in the mail? And that your stocks are going to shoot through the roof? No, I ain't promise you that at all. But I will say that you will be blessed by God both in this life and in the life to come when you give to God. He will, He will bless you. Those are His promises. And so we see that, that when we truly worship God, He's going to want our best. And He's going to want our all. He's going to want 
us to always be examining and being joyful givers so that his work is not hindered, but that it goes on. And thirdly, we, we know we worship self when we worship the God of our own creation instead of the God of revelation. We find in, in Malachi a wounded people, a people that are really struggling, that have been through a lot of pain. Uh, they've been in Babylonian captivity most recently, and, and they were rebuilding, but things weren't progressing as fast as they probably would like for it to go. And they were just struggling. And they were, they were struggling with age-old questions. They were struggling with, hey, is God good? Is he good? Because a lot of bad has happened to us. Now, I think they're ignoring a lot of bad that they've done towards God. We see throughout the minor prophets, we've seen that, right? They're doing a lot of bad. It's not like they're these awesome people that God's uh, being rough with. But, but they are questioning, and does he really love me? Does he really love us? Because we've been through some rough stuff. And then they're also... Um, they're also struggling with, is he powerful? Is he powerful? Like, maybe he does love us, but he's just not, he doesn't have the power to, to keep us out of suffering and, and to punish the evil in the world. And we see that in two main areas of, first, how the book opens in, in chapter uh, 1. verse 2 it says I have loved you so it's God he's reaffirming his love for them he says I have loved you says the Lord but you say how have you loved us is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I have hated I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And so God, in their response of, of, of asking, does he really love us? His answer is, yes, I love you. And we know in the Old Testament that there were two, two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And for God's own purposes, he chose, his, he chose to pour out his blessings and his love on Jacob. And he, and he chose, as the scripture says, to hate, to pour out uh, destruction on Esau. And so God says, you feel like things are going bad? Look at Esau. That's what, that's what true, when I truly detest a nation and I have not made them my own that's what it looks like a people that that I have put down and if they try to get back up I'm going to put them down again in fact it says um, the the who the Lord people whom the Lord is angry forever and basically what God's saying here is hey look just really look around Yeah, temporarily you guys aren't doing so great. You've had struggles. You've been in Babylon in captivity. Uh, the rebuild process has, has struggled. But know this, that 
I still love you, and, my, and, and this bad time that you're going through, it's not forever. And so God reaffirms with them that he is good, that he does love them. And we also see that God assures them of his power. We see that, see that in chapter 3, verse 13. It says this, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. So they've been complaining. They've been saying a lot of bad things about their God. And it says, But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping uh, His charge or of walking us in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And, And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So there's this idea he's dealing with here of you think that I'm powerless. You, you see the way you're hurting, the way the evil people prosper, and, and they're putting me to the test and you think it's always going to be that way. It says in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord said, Attention, uh, and the Lord, I'm sorry, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him uh, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up uh, my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the destruction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So God says, don't be fooled. Do not be fooled by temporary circumstances. Certainly, don't build your view of me around the way things look in a certain moment. You look, hey, we're suffering. There's a lot of evil people that's not. Therefore, God doesn't have the power to do anything. He's saying, Don't dare, don't dare define me by moments. I'm the eternal God, and and a plan is unraveling that you can't possibly comprehend. And he he says, make no mistake here, he he basically says, the the distinction, the line will be drawn between the evil and the righteous, the wicked and the righteous. Because we know that those who fear God will in salvation turn to Christ, right? Our fear of God will cause us, uh, hopefully, to run to the salvation that's provided in Christ. And what happens? He puts places upon us the righteousness of Christ, and we become righteous. And then it says that the wicked, as though, you know, that's those who do nothing, those who remain in their sin. They do not take action. And so God says, make no mistake, the dividing line will be drawn. I will work my mighty power. Don't be judged by temporary things. Don't, folks, don't look around and say, man, I'm really hurting. And all these evil people are, are succeeding, and therefore God must not be powerful. Because God says here, and he says time and time again, make no mistake, the day's coming when I will set things right. And the major question you must ask yourself is, do I stand with the righteous 
Is, will he remember me as the righteous or will he remember me and know me as the wicked? And the fact is we're all wicked unless we come to Christ and receive the righteousness that's provided in him. There's an old saying. It says, only two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. It's a great thing to think about as you go throughout your days, as you worship your God. Only two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. Are you someone who is living to please God? Are you someone that's living like the people of Malachi's day? to please themselves. May we be those who truly worship God, who truly, because of that worship, we treat our spouses differently, we treat those under our care differently. May we be those who give our all because we truly do worship the living God. And let us be those who worship a God not of circumstantial evidence in a moment but may we be uh, may we have fear of the one who is revealed in scripture who will one day set all things right I'm going to ask our musicians to come and I'm going to ask you uh, to please stand and respond uh, to God however he has spoken to you through his word this morning Let's pray. Dear, gracious, and heavenly Father, God, we are a people that because of Adam and Eve, we struggle as the people of Malachi's day. We struggle to truly worship you. So often we turn our focus to ourselves instead of joyfully living lives of worship to you. And God, help us. Help us to look for weaknesses in our lives of areas where our supposed, our, our statements of worship to you are not matching with how we're treating others. God, help us to look at the life we're living for you or the finances that we're giving to your work and God ask help us to ask ourselves are we truly giving or are we robbing you of glory that is due you and God help us to worship you as you truly are not moved by temporary circumstance but rock solid in the fact that you're the God who has revealed himself in scriptures and you will punish the wicked and you will reward those who are righteous in Christ. Move in us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.